few years ago, Marcia and I had the opportunity to go to a country where Christianity and the Bible is forbidden. And we went there to meet with a family that was planting an underground church. And part of our process was to go in with two other missionaries, meet the family, find out how we could partner with them and possibly uh, set up some training for other believers in that country, outside of the country, obviously, so they could go back in again. On the way into the country, Marcia let me know that she had packed a rather large study Bible in my suitcase, in my bag, and I carry a small suitcase whenever I go overseas because I don't like going with a big bag. It's just your typical American shows up with all their clothes. I try to minimize so that's not a burden to them, besides their cars are really small. So I got this big Bible, and I'm going into a country where Bibles are banned. And I uh, was assured by the two missionaries we were with that it'd be no problem that they'd been in and out of the country several times and nobody had ever checked their bags. So I was doing fine until we got an unbelievable security, until we got to the last uh, security before you leave the airport where you still had to walk through the machine and you still had to have your bags x-rayed. And there was this great big sign in red with yellow letters that said, you may not bring in religious material. It is forbidden. And I looked at them, and they looked at me and said, no problem. So I put my bag on the uh, conveyor belt. The two missionaries, their bags went through, no problem. Marsha's bag, and she went through, no problem. And my bag went through, and there was a problem. They stopped the machine. They took the bag off. They said, who does the bag belong to? I said, to her, my wife. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't, all right? I said, my bags, they said, you, over there. So I had to go to the table, and there's this officer standing there, customs official, and again, my little bag's there, the Bible's right in there, and it's not as small, I mean, it's just a big, big old study Bible, right? And uh, he opens it up, and I thought, one of two things is going to happen. He's going to take my Bible, throw it in the trash, reprimand me, or hold me in detention until a flight can be found where I can get, you know, go back home. So I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, God, I need your help. And he's looking at me, and he unzips the bag, and he never, he never looks in the bag. He just stares at me and puts his hands in there, and he's rifling through several, it felt like several minutes, through my bag. I mean, it's so obvious. You could feel it. it was a big square book. And while he's doing that, he's trying to smile at me, and he's kind of chattering with me in broken English. And then he's finally done, and he zips it up, and he says, you can go. And I was so relieved, and I found out why, a couple days later, why he missed that Bible. And I'll tell you why toward the end of the message. <laughs> this is, <clears throat> sorry, you got to stay. Uh, this is the last message in our series uh, that's dealt with the common objections toward Christianity, and one of them happens to be the Bible. There are people out there who just say, I, you know, I, I don't, get into Christianity because I can't believe that this Bible is, you know, completely true, that it's God's authoritative word. I believe that it's a mixture of, of truth and legend and myth. A survey was done back in May, I got a copy, or had a copy of it in my office, and uh, it was on what do Christians believe about the Bible. So it's just a few weeks ago, and 36% of Americans uh, believe that the Bible is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Which, you know, when I read that, I thought, that's sad, 36%, you know, way less than half. 
But the good news was 38%, there's a 38% increase in Christians who actively engage with truth, and they cited actively engaged, meaning at least once a week they're opening the Bibles, they're turning, and they're reading it. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, well, that's, that's good. And maybe the reason why is because the majority of Americans believe that there still are some good moral attributes, some good moral teachings that can be found in the Scriptures. I thought, well, that, that's, that's encouraging. But my concern is that our attitude toward the Bible is very much like that of Thomas Jefferson's. If you know from history, Thomas Jefferson came up with what's called the Jeffersonian Bible. And what he did is he went to the Gospels in particular with a pair of scissors, literally, and he cut out anything that had to do with the deity of Christ or anything that had to do with the miracles. And what was left is what he lived by. And I think that's kind of where our culture is today. We, you know, we have respect for certain aspects of the Bible, but there, there are a lot of things about we don't like or we don't disagree or our peer group doesn't like and disagrees with. So we take a proverbial pair of scissors and we kind of at least mentally cut that stuff out and that leaves some of us with a two-page Bible, all right? Because there's a lot, you know, and if I just say if I don't agree with it and I don't like it, I don't believe it, does that make the truth go away? Of course not. For me, it either is all truth or not. If I have to pick through this thing and figure out what is true and what is not, how do I know that what I think is true really is true? So where does the Bible come from? It's a really important question to answer, isn't it? Voltaire, the French philosopher, said something like this. He said, if you want to destroy Christianity, destroy the Christian's belief in the Bible. Get rid of that and you'll get rid of Christianity. So what do we know about the Bible? Let's look at some internal evidence, first of all. Uh, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you don't mind, uh, let's read it aloud together. Here we go. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why don't you just focus on the word Scripture? <clears throat> and God breathe. Charles Ryrie, biblical scholar, tells us that Scripture, as it's used there, is a word that can refer to part or all of the Old Testament or part or all of the New Testament. Therefore, Scripture means the books of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. God breathe means that which God has inspired. So let's all do this together. Let's take a, a deep breath and exhale. Ready? One, two, three. So the scripture is God's breath captured in wet ink on paper. Now, these books come from God. They, they, in essence, come out of God, and they are, they are given to us. That means from Genesis Revelation, 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years with one common theme is all God-breathed, given to us. Erwin Lutzer, retired pastor of Moody Church, in writing about this comments, and I want to read you his words. He says, the Bible is a book of God and a book of man. God's part was to superintend the writing of the books, revealing his will. Man's part was to write this revelation using a human language and style so that God's message was preserved for future generations. By the way, Erwin has written a book. It is titled, Seven Reasons why you can trust the Bible by Erwin Lutzer. If you don't have a book like this, uh, I encourage you to either buy it, you know, and, or download it on your Kindle, whatever you happen to use, and have that available just for your own sake. 
And also when people ask you questions. And how many of you are parents of students? Let me see your hands, all right? You know, your students have questions. You need to be able to give them good answers. We don't want to be what's called fetus. A fetus is somebody who just believes it because somebody said it. My mom treated me that way when I was a little boy. I'd say, Mom, why? And she'd say, because I said so. That only works until you're about one year old. <laughs> uh, people have questions. We need to be able to answer those questions, especially to our students, because they're peppered with those questions all day long at school, in the university, by their peers and their friends, and you want to help them out, all right? Let's look at another passage of Scripture. This comes from Peter. Let's read it aloud together. Above all, you must, not, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's saying, look, we didn't make this up. This came from God. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way. For, excuse me, I can't even read. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So God speaks, and God speaks in various ways because he uses various, various people. Norman Geisler is a, is a scholar, a philosopher, a theologian, a brilliant man, and he's written a lot on apologetics, defense of faith, and he says we need to understand that when God spoke the scriptures to us, inspired them, he used different personalities. So, for instance, you read Paul, and he's very different than reading something Peter wrote. Even Peter at one place in one of his epistles says, man, that guy Paul, his words are hard to understand. Because Paul was a rhetorician. He was a, he, was a, he was a brilliant man, and he wrote in a different way, and Peter's far more practical. Just like Luke is an historian, and he's a doctor in his background, so Luke writes very differently than, say, John, who writes differently than Matthew, who writes differently than James. And they all have different language skills, and they all use different illustrations and stories. But they're all, God's using their personalities, and he's using their experience to, to speak out the truth. It's kind of like when I see the vocalists on stage. They're all singing the same song, but each one sings it a little bit differently, and each one sounds differently. Or musicians, you can have four musicians play the same instrument, it's the same instrument, but it sounds a little bit different because they add something other personality and their skill level to it. Same thing is true with the Bible. So we need to take the Bible seriously. We need to realize that this Bible that we love and we believe in is a, is a, a book really made up of 66 books that has been subjected to all kinds of scrutiny for many, many years. And sometimes I get, a I get a little concerned that, that we allow people to make us feel like we're idiots as Christians, that we buy into this argument that Christians really don't know what they're talking about. They really, you know, they believe in this, this book, this fairy tale, and they haven't spent any scholarly energy in really examining it because if they did, they would understand that it's not true, that it doesn't withstand the test. And if you've heard that, or if you think that, or you fear that, I'm going to help you get over it right now, because I want you to know that these 66 books have been examined, have been studied, have been scrutinized, have been tested, have been poked at for hundreds of years, more so than any other literature, some of which is just accepted in universities, accepted by people with PhDs, accepted by scholars out there as fact and as truth. 
So let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's take some secular documents like, like those based on Herodotus, the father of history, the man who invented history, so to speak, in terms of writing. You know, we don't have any of Herodotus' original writings. What we have are simply copies, and we only have eight copies. And the earliest copy is still 1,300 years after Herodotus lived. But nobody questions what Herodotus wrote. Or Plato. You know, we don't have any originals from Plato. We have seven copies, and the earliest is 1,200 years after Plato lived and spoke and wrote. Or Aristotle. We have 49 copies, no originals. But that comes 1,400 years. It's the earliest date after Aristotle. Or Homer. Now, with Homer, we have 500 copies, all right? And about the earliest copy, 643 years after Homer lived. Now, the more copies that you have, the more you can cross-reference them and say, is there any discrep major discrepancy or error here? And with Homer, it's about 95% accurate. Well, let's just talk about the New Testament for a moment. The New Testament, we have over 5,600 manuscripts. Copies and copies and copies of copies. The earliest being within a hundred years of the originals, which we don't possess. When you cross-reference all those manuscripts, 99.5% accurate. And the variances that occur, the textual variances that occur, there are 150,000 of them. Say, oh, 150,000, oh my goodness, we can't believe the Bible if you got that many variances. But it depends on how you define a variance. So I'm going to give you a sentence in a moment. And I'm going to ask you to you know, get your brain engaged here. I'm going to give you a chance to be a scholar. And I want to see if you can decipher this sentence, which has several variances in it. Let's put it up. And uh, I know you're pressed for time. I know that's like an algebraic problem. And you've got to take some time to really think it through. But I've given you enough time now. With those variances, can you interpret that sentence? Can you get the plain meaning of that sentence? It says, you have just won a million dollars. Don't you wish that were true? And would you tithe it? All right. Now, was that hard to figure out? No. Right? That's kind of what happens in these manuscripts. You get certain ticks or little marks that scribes have made, certain letters over time that get blurred out. But there's enough there from all the other manuscripts to be able to figure out the plain and simple meaning of it. God has superintended through the power of his Holy Spirit the putting together the scriptures to convey to you and me. And God, in his own unique ways, only God could do, uses human writers and makes sure that things are faithfully transmitted on to us, to you and me. You say, but how do you know whether these are just the words of men, well-written, well-copied, that are just presented as the word of God? How do I know that's the word of God? How do I, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's a great 66 books that make sense and feel unified. But how do I know they haven't just kind of put it out there and said, oh, this is God's word? Well, all you have to do is check prophecy, for instance. When you think about the prophecies of the Bible, especially those prophecies related to Christ's coming, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, the Old Testament's filled with them. How do you know? I mean, that's one way you can know whether this is true or not. Did those prophecies get fulfilled? And did they get fulfilled in the way that they were shared? Well, there's a man, and I could, I could use examples of different men. I chose Ralph Muncaster. I could have chose Lee Strobel. You've heard of him. 
you know, an atheist became a Christian. He's written a bunch of books, but he's overused. All right, I wanted to use somebody else. And his name is Ralph Muncaster, M-U-N-C-A-S-T-E-R. Ralph Muncaster was an atheist, devout atheist. He was also an engineer. And it wasn't just enough to be passive about his atheism. He was determined he was going to use a scientific engineering background, and he's going to prove the Bible was wrong, and he figured out how to do it. He figured out the way to do it was to just look at the prophecies and show those prophecies that Christians claim have been fulfilled to show they have not been fulfilled, to show that there's error with them, that they're wrong rather than being accurate, true, or right. So Ralph Muncaster went about this. He came up with a statistical formula to apply to these prophecies that supposedly were true. They look for any mistake, any kind of error that could disprove them. And he chose 100 Old Testament prophecies that he was going to examine in the process. And while he was doing that, he was rather amazed as he began to read Scripture that Scripture actually invites this kind of scrutiny. For instance, let me just give you an example. Turn, if you want to, in uh, your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. Now, what's interesting is this passage in Isaiah 41 is actually God speaking, speaking to the false prophets, to the idols. And he said, one of the ways we can prove whether or not you're a true prophet or a real God is, does what you say actually come to pass? So in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21, he says, Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are gods. Then if you skip over to Isaiah chapter 46, God now speaks. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 8, God says, Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. Idols are false, they're sticks and stones. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Muncaster writes, I was somewhat surprised by the Bible's arrogant seeming boast about its God being the God and that there were no others. How surprised by the law that prophecy be 100% perfect according to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 20 where it says if a prophecy did not come true, the prophet was killed. In probability testing, only an acceptable degree of statistical significance is necessary to reach a conclusion, not perfection. But I reminded myself that a perfect God in the universe would be able to perfectly predict the future in any writing or person he inspired, just as the Bible had declared. I decided to examine each testament individually to see if either could clearly point to a God through 100% accurate historical prophecy. And so he chose 100 from the Old Testament specifically to look at, and he applied his statistical theory to it, and he was blown away. Listen to what he says. The statistical prophecy testing I was going through was hitting me like a ton of bricks. My rational mind told me it was impossible. After all, hadn't man written the Bible? Yet something was quite amazing, almost frightening. How could books written centuries in advance predict the future? And with 100% accuracy, he went on to say that for this to just happen randomly, that 100, that 100 prophecies all be 
exactly fulfilled as the way they said it would for that to randomly happen would require 10 with 118 zeros behind it. Or as Pastor Ken Bob puts it in very practical terms, that would be like winning 17 state lotteries in a row by just buying one ticket for each or being struck by lightning 24 times in one year. Or it would be like you taking a five-week vacation for your job, travel around the world in a private jet, stay at Ritz-Carlton at each location, and drive around in a chauffeur limousine except for the occasional rental of a black Ferrari or red Lamborghini Diablo to run on the Autobahn. All this without your boss's permission, using the company credit card for all your expenses, and coming back to your office the following Monday after your five-week stint and hearing your boss tell you he missed you and he hoped you had a really nice time. In other words, it ain't going to happen, right? It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. But as he applied his theory to this whole thing, he couldn't help but realize that it was true. And as a result, came to faith in Christ. And now, you know, rather than writing against God, against God's word, he's a proponent, obviously, for God and for God's word. Now, I commend to you his book, it's a simple book. It's called Can You Trust the Bible by Ralph Muncaster, M-U-N-C-A-S-T-E-R. And again, have that in your library. Have that for your kids. Have it for yourself. Use it to, to read and, and to understand and be able to defend what you believe towards those who, and, and for the most part, most people out there today, by the way, even in the colleges, all right, universities, but especially in the culture today, make all kinds of statements as though they're facts and they've never examined the facts. We have a little saying, we have a little saying for that these days. It's called fake news, <laughs> right? Say things factually, but you don't examine the facts. And you've got to be ready to challenge their presuppositions. And you need to know the facts when you do that. Now, I, we could go on talking more and more about the internal evidence. I just want to talk about the external evidence very momentarily. And I want to talk about archaeology, and I'm, I'm a fan of archaeology. And archaeology is one of the best friends of the Bible. There's an archaeologist uh, that I knew from Wheaton College said to me years ago, he said, Dale, he said, the, the, you can't depend on archaeology to prove the Bible, but archaeology lends tremendous illumination on what the Bible has already said and revealed. And so there are archaeologists out there who tell us that archaeology is a friend, and some of them you wouldn't expect to say things like they do. For instance, and, and this man has now passed away, but Miller Burroughs was a professor uh, at Yale University and oversaw the Oriental Research uh, uh, se section there, and he wrote these words. He said, on the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation in Palestine. Archaeology has, in many cases, refuted the views of modern critics. Or Nelson Glick, who, is, who was president of the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio, a scholar and archaeologist, says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Whereas, on the other, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Edwin Yamauchi, who was uh, a scholar in, at Miami University in Ohio and an archaeologist, 
uh, expert in, in, in Persian history, says that only about 2 or 3% of the tells in the Middle East have been, have been dug up. I, and I've stood on many that haven't been dug up. He says of the 2%, only a fraction have been thoroughly dug up and investigated. And of that, only a fraction have been well publicized. And so there are all these tells that still haven't been, dug up, haven't been dug up. There are all these hidden clues out there that more than likely will verify what the scriptures say. So just because only the Bible says it, you haven't found any other literature or any other findings yet to verify it, doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. Just dig some more. Just dig some more. And so, you know, one of the things that I appreciate here at Wooddale Church is just the variety of individuals God has blessed our church with. And one of them is a gentleman by the name of Timothy Mahoney. And, and, and Tim started a, a quest uh, of, of trying to solve some of the skepticism and doubts that he had, which led to a film that was put out there uh, uh, fairly recently that you can still get and, and go online because, you know, Tim has examined the whole area of the Exodus. There are a lot of people who don't think the Exodus really happened. There are a lot of people who don't think that Israel is literally enslaved by the Egyptians. And Tim has done a fantastic job pulling together all kinds of brilliant scholarly minds and, and those who aren't even believers to examine the evidence. I encourage you and I, and I want to uh, invite you to go to his website, PatternsofEvidence.com, PatternsofEvidence.com, and check it out and look at the facts and look at the history. And he not only deals with the Exodus, but uh, he's got a project going on right now to show more evidence for other uh, things that would help us believe and accept the validity of the scriptures, and you can read all about it. I get, a, I get a regular email from that website, and I appreciate the scholarly information that's being put out there, and I encourage you to do that. Encourage you to do that. Encourage you to take advantage of that. I mean, archaeology truly is the best friend of the Bible. You know, for many years, people didn't think King David existed. They thought it was just, you know, in the Bible. Till they're digging around up in northern Israel, a place called Tel Dan, and they found a stone, and on the stone was written whose name? King David's name. Now all of a sudden what the Bible said, oh, well, that was true. For a long time, people said the pools of Siloam did not, do not exist. In John chapter 9 is, I think, where Jesus comes along and he heals the man who was blind and put mud on his eyes. Remember that? He said, go wash in the pools of Siloam. And he washes the mud off and he can see. And scholars said, oh, John just made that up. There's no pools of Siloam. It's just a little myth. It's just a little story. And in 2005, they were digging up a sewer line that had broken. And in the process, guess what they found? They found the pools of Siloam. I stood there. I've taught there. Some of you have been there as well. Perhaps with me on one of the tours. Or there are people who said Pontius Pilate never existed because we didn't have any, his name mentioned anywhere else. It was only in the Bible. Therefore, it must be a myth. He must not be a real person. And then they were digging around in Cesar Mir team several years ago, quite a few years ago, and they found this big relief. And guess whose name was inscribed on it? Pontius Pilate. Now all of a sudden, oh, Pontius Pilate existed. And I could go on with you and tell you other examples, hundreds of examples where archaeology verifies what the scriptures have already said to us. So don't just throw it out because you can't find it anywhere else. Thank God it's been so well preserved. What does that tell you about the copyist? What does that tell you about the word of God? But the most powerful thing about God's word isn't, isn't just what archaeology helps us discover or you know, people apply their theorems and their tests to it. The greatest, 
The greatest proof of the power of God's word is its ability to change somebody's life because it just simply captures in print the breath of God. It captures in ink God's breath. And God's word is living and God's word is active. And when I take it in and I trust it, what it reveals to me about Jesus, what it reveals to me about God, what it reveals to me about salvation, what it tells me about how to make my marriage work, what it tells me about how to be a parent, what it tells me how to handle my finances, what it tells me about my attitude, what it tells me about forgiveness, and on and on it goes. Folks, it works, it works. Because the, the, the scripture's like a flashlight in this dark world. It points us to the truth. And that's the greatest way to know its power. And when we as Christians live by this truth, like seriously take it into heart and mind and live by it, we become a very powerful witness. My fear, though, is that we're very apathetic about it. We've got a Bible, but it just lays around. We don't really look at it. And when we look at it, we don't, we don't ingest it. We don't take it to heart. And I know God has a purpose for his word. He said it won't return void. So Marcia and I were in this country and we had this Bible that we got through the x-ray machine and we're just toting it around everywhere we go. It's in our room and even keep it kind of locked up in there in case the maids go snooping around. And we had this guide that's been assigned to us. And in that country, if you go in as a tourist, you have to have an official guide. And part of his job was to show us around, but part of his job was to make, you know, make sure we lived within the rules. Well, he kept telling us about his Buddhist faith and how he's been reincarnated many different times and probably will be reincarnated yet up the escalator to that point when he gets absorbed into a very non-personal kind of power that's out there. And Marcia kept hearing this over and over again and she couldn't stand it. And she said, somebody needs to tell him about Jesus Christ. I said, well, that could get us kicked out of the country and put in jail. I said, do you want to go to jail? You can tell about Jesus. I got to get back to church. <laughs> and that didn't even stop her. Eventually, she said, I've got to talk to him about Jesus. So we had a lull where he said we could go kind of walk around in an area. And I said, look, if you want to stay back and share that, you know, then follow God's leading in your heart. And so she did. She stayed back. Um, and she shared her testimony, who Jesus is and what he means to her. And then she asked him a question. She said, if I had a Bible to give you, would you like it? And he said, absolutely. Where do you think that Bible came from? Why do you think that officer couldn't see or feel that huge Bible in my small little suitcase? Because God had intended for that Bible to be delivered to that young man. Now, because of the country and it's so hard to get in and out of, we, there's no way we could have contact with him, but by faith we believe, and I do believe, he was a very smart young man, I believe he picked it up, probably in secret someplace, and started to read through it. And my hope is that God's word grabbed his heart, that he came to faith in Christ and will see him someday in heaven. That's in the hands of God's spirit. God's word is living, active, and powerful. Amen? Amen? You don't have to doubt. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be embarrassed. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, it is true.